Right, today we'll take a quick look at the Gospel. It's taken from the fourth chapter of the Gospel of St. Matthew. We rely almost entirely upon the great commentary of Cornelius Alapide. In today's Gospel, we can clearly see Christ our Lord, the new Adam, doing well the very things in which Adam fell. Adam heeds the temptations of the devil and ignores the commandments of God and he falls. While Christ heeds the commandments of God, it ignores the temptation of the devil, and he triumphs. To put all this in context to today's gospel, let's start by taking a closer look at the fall of our first parents. I'll read from Genesis 3. Quote, Now the serpent was more subtle than any of the beasts of the earth which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Why hath God commanded you that you should not eat of every tree of paradise? And the woman answered him, saying, Of the fruit of the trees that are in paradise we do eat. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of paradise, God hath commanded us that we should not eat, and that we should not touch it, lest perhaps we die. And the serpent said to the woman, No, you shall not die the death. For God doth know that in what day soever you shall eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good to eat, and fair to the eyes, and delightful to behold. And she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave to her husband, who did eat. So, close quote, inspired and errant word of God. Let's first note that the serpent told five lies. Cornelius Lapide lists them for us. Quote, first, you shall not die. Second, your eyes shall be opened. Third, you shall be as gods. Fourth, you shall know good and evil. And fifth, the devil implies, God knows all these things that I'm telling you to be true and that I'm not lying. Since God knows all these things and he loves you, it's not likely he wishes to deprive you of the fruit of this tree which has so high a degree of usefulness. Okay, as we all know, in response to these temptations and lies of the devil, Eve sinned. As a matter of fact, she committed five sins. Citing St. Ambrose, St. Ignatius of Antioch, St. John Chrysostom, and St. Augustine, Cornelius Lapide states that, quote, In the first place, Eve, followed later by Adam, committed the sin of pride. Undoubtedly, when Eve and Adam heard, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil, they were tempted to gaze in admiration at their own excellence. And therefore, as they turned towards themselves, they swelled up with pride, so that their hearts drew back from God. And finally, as was the case with Lucifer, they desired omniscience and a certain kind of equality with God. Close quote. Now, continuing to speak of Eve's sins, Cornelius Lapide notes, quote, From this sin of pride, there immediately followed impatience and indignation of soul at being restricted by this precept and from being prohibited to access to so noble a fruit. Then the sin of curiosity. Now, to understand what the sin of curiosity is, there's a virtue called studiousness. Now, studiousness is a virtue which moderates in us the desire and the pursuit of truth and it moderates it in accordance with right reason. 
Now, studiousness, there are two vices opposed to it. One is the vice of curiosity. Curiosity is an excessive desire for knowledge. And you see this, people wanting to know a lot of things, it's really none of their business. How many different sins are provoked by curiosity? The other vice opposed to studiousness is negligence. Now, that's a voluntary omission of knowledge that's essential for one's state and condition in life. This is really a common sin. Curiosity, on the one hand, I mean, the media plays off that all the time with people butting into things that they, they have no reason to know about. But in terms of negligence, how many Catholics just basically stop learning anything about their faith about the time they've made their first communion or maybe confirmation? And that is it. I get in these interesting discussions, I'm sure many of you have too before, where you have people with like galactic educations, they, they've got degrees coming out their ears, and they start telling you something like, why does the church teach this? And they launch on it, and say, finally you have to say, I'll take both sides of the argument for you, so you know what you're supposed to be saying here, because obviously you don't have a clue. Uh, it's, it's so, why? They haven't kept their understanding of the faith commensurate with their state in life. For our whole life, we have to keep working at having a deeper appreciation. These are the holy things. These are the most important things. These are the things that last. Everything else is of no lasting concern. And that's not making fun of an education. We just have to keep it in the right perspective. We always have to be growing in our knowledge of the faith, and we keep it commensurate with our state in life. That's why spiritual reading is so important to keep educating ourselves, to keep going forward, to keep making sure that we have a good understanding of what our faith teaches us. So anyway, sin of curiosity. So she commits the sin of pride, then the sin of curiosity, followed immediately by the sin of gluttony, and at last, an error in the understanding. For both Eve as well as Adam believed the words of the serpent, promising omniscience and immortality if they ate from the forbidden tree. And this led at last to perfect disobedience in the transgression of the commandment. Close quote. All right, so although Eve committed five sins, Cornelius Elapide, following Perius, states that Adam committed eight sins. Quote, first was pride. Second was the excessive desire to please his wife. Now, a husband should want to please his wife, but not at the cost of sin, of course. Third was the sin of curiosity. Fourth was a sin of unbelief, as if God had only figuratively spoken of death rather than absolutely threatening violators of his commandment with with that punishment. Fifth was the sin of presumption, as if the violation of this law would only be a slight venial sin. Sixth was a sin of gluttony, Seventh was a sin of disobedience. And eighth was a sin of making excuses. Close quote. Then he poses the question, if you ask who sinned more grievously, Adam or Eve, St. Thomas responds that if the sin is considered in itself, Eve sinned more grievously, both because she sinned first and also because she induced Adam to sin and therefore she ruined not only herself, and him, but through him, all of us. But if the circumstances of the person are considered, Adam sinned more grievously, both because he was more perfect and more prudent than Eve, and also because Adam had received the commandment directly from God, 
whereas Eve had received it only through Adam. Close quote. Of course, we all fell in Adam. Okay, now with all that as background, let's turn back to today's gospel. When did the temptation in the desert take place? Cornelius Lapide, quote, It seems that Christ, on the same sixth day of January on which he was baptized, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And at the close of the same day, he began his 40 days fast, which he would finish on the 15th of February. Therefore, this temptation of Christ took place on February 16th, in the year of our Lord, 31. Verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. This does not signify that the Holy Ghost directly intended that the devil's temptation should sail a Christ, but only to permit the temptation for the sake of Christ's profit and victory. In the first place, St. John Chrysostom and St. Hilary of Poitiers teach that the Holy Spirit intended by this that Christ, who was tempted immediately after his baptism, might give a model of life to Christians who are baptized and converted to God, by which they should learn to resist the temptations assailing them and to fortify themselves against them. Secondly, Christ, by his example, would demonstrate that every temptation can be overcome by the grace which he pours down, by prayer and fasting, by the words of sacred scripture, by meditation upon the precepts and promises of God, by constancy, fortitude, and confidence in God. In the third place, that with his temptation as example, he might teach us to fight with and overcome the same enemy, Satan, and that Christ might merit for us the grace and fortitude needed to do this. For although the faithful, conscious of their own weakness, ought to avoid temptations as far as they can, yet when temptations do come, we must, relying upon Christ, generously and valiantly resist them, since Christ has said, Have confidence, I have overcome the world. As St. Ambrose says, When you're tempted, recognize that a crown is being prepared for you. Take away the contest of the martyrs, and you take away their crowns, take away their torments, and you take away their beatitudes. Jesus was tempted by the devil, namely Lucifer, for here the prince of all the demons is called the devil. Lucifer, therefore, at this time, came forth from hell, and taking the form of a man, tempted Christ. Firstly, that he might investigate whether he were God's very own son by nature, and secondly, that he might test him, that is, entice him to sin. Therefore, as Lucifer through Eve tempted Adam and overcame him, so he tempted Christ, but was overcome by him. As Lucifer through Eve tempted Adam and overcame him, so he tempted Christ, but was overcome by him. Verse 2, And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Note that Christ, after the example of Moses and Elias, fasted 40 whole days and nights without taking any food or drink whatever. He fasted not by natural, but by supernatural strength, as the fathers teach. You ask for what reasons Christ fasted. I answer that by weakening his flesh by fasting, he might make satisfaction for Adam's eating the forbidden fruit and for all the gluttony and illicit delights of Adam's posterity. 
And according to St. Ignatius of Antioch and other fathers, the more particular reason was that Christ might inaugurate the Lenten fast, observed by Christians by apostolic tradition, that he might sanctify and consecrate this fast by his example. The reason was that by this fast we might give a tithe of all the days in the year to God, as St. Gregory the Great teaches. St. Gregory the Great. Thus, in the course of 365 days, we deny ourselves during Lent and, so to speak, give a tithe on our year to God, that we who have lived for ourselves might mortify ourselves for our Maker by abstinence in his tenth of it. Hence, dearest brethren, as you are commanded by the law to offer the tithe of your substance, so also offer to God the tithe of your days. Close quote, St. Gregory the Great. So we want to have a good Lent and look at it as a tithe of mortification to make up for the rest of the year in that way. Verse 3. And the tempter coming said to him, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. The devil took on the form of a human body that he might tempt our Lord by speaking in an audible voice. As St. John Damascene teaches, this temptation of Christ, like that of Adam by Eve, in their state of innocence, was affected purely by the external suggestion of the voice alone and not by internal movements of concupiscence rising up against reason in the spirit. Now remember what concupiscence is. It's a fruit of the original sin. It's one of the results of the original sin. Because before the original sin, the state of original justice, everything's ordered. So the passions completely obey right reason. For example, before the original sin, Adam could have looked over at his wife uh, speaking with a serpent and said, you know, this calls for anger. So he could have got exactly angry as was, as was a proportionate, reasonable for the situation, for exactly as long as was reasonable, and then he could have been completely calm, just like that. He had that kind of power. We can wake up angry. We can get, we can get totally disproportionately angry over something that doesn't really matter, and then have a very hard time calming down. That's one of the things that concupiscence. Or the advertising industry, except in t- technical journals, some technical journals, what's that rooted in? Concupiscence. Because it's just scientifically designed temptations. I mean, you have the half-clothed girl laying across the car. Why is that the implication? I buy the car, I get the girl. All these kind of things. What does it have to do with, with the car? Or serial advertisements. How, those are, how many of those are rooted in reason? It doesn't say, well, this, after a year you can expect this many cavities in your children. When, after they eat it, they'll be ricocheting off the walls. It doesn't say any of that. It has all this happy, clappy music, and it's all surrounded by things in order to work on concupiscence. So concupiscence is disordered uh, movement of the passions, not subject to right reason. So Adam is in the state of original justice, and Christ was much more so. And in this state, all the motions in the soul and imagination were subject to right reason, so much so that in Christ, no unlawful thought, no motion of concupiscence could possibly be stirred up by the devil, such as is stirred up in us since Adam's sin. For by Adam's sin, excepting, of course, for Our Lady, we have lost original justice and are troubled by concupiscence. Note here the craft of the devil, how he tempts each one by the thing for which he has an inclination or in which he is weak. As St. Gregory the Great points out, just as hunters sent snares for various wild birds and beasts, baiting them with various sorts of food so as to capture a particular kind of animal or bird, so too the devil offers foods and delicacies to those prone to gluttony or to the hungry, as he offers them here to Christ. Well, to those who are full, he offers sleep, ease, and sloth. To the proud, he offers honors. To the angry, lawsuits and strives. 
to the avaricious, usury, fraud, unjust contracts. To the curious, he offers sorcery, incantations, superstitions, and the like. If thou be the Son of God, the devil had heard the Father's voice at the baptism of Christ. This is my beloved Son. And he also heard St. John the Baptist's testimony that Christ was the Son of God. Yet he also saw in some respects Christ appeared to be a simple, poor, weak, ordinary mortal. And therefore, since the devil was uncertain as to whether Christ was the Son of God by nature, the very word of the Father, or only a very eminent Son of God by adoption, he tempts Christ and asks him to turn stones into bread with which to relieve his hunger, so that by the performance of this miracle, or inability to perform it, he might determine which of the two he was, the Son of God by nature or an eminent Son of God by adoption. If Christ had done this miracle, the devil would have believed that he was the Word and Son of God. It is a probable opinion of many theologians that the sin and pride of Lucifer in heaven were that when God revealed to him that the Son of God would take on a human nature and asked him to submit himself to Christ as man, he became envious of Christ that a man should be preferred to himself who was the most noble angel. Of this honor he himself was ambitious, and so he rebelled against Christ and God. When, therefore, he saw this man called the Son of God by St. John the Baptist and the Father, he wished to find out if he really were God's Son, so that he might pour out upon him his previous envy, fury, and indignation. Verse 4, Who answered and said, It is written, Not in bread alone doth man live, but in every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Christ here quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. That in context is speaking of uh, the manna for heaven. So he's quoting it in the sense that just as God fed the Jews in the desert for 40 years without bread by sending them manna from heaven, just as God fed Moses, Elias, and Christ for 40 days by his word and by his power, so also on whatsoever thing God shall command, man shall live, be nourished, and sustained. Verse 5. Then the devil took him up into the holy city. It's Jerusalem. The devil, having been conquered by Christ in the first temptation to gluttony, immediately subjected him to the second temptation, vainglory. According to St. Jerome, St. John Chrysostom, and St. Hilary of Poitiers, this is a natural sequence of temptation to pass from gluttony to vainglory. For when the devil sees a pious person despise gluttony and the pleasures and allurements of the flesh, he raises up against him the spirits of temptation of vanity and presumption. For carnal men are prone to gluttony, but eminent and spiritual men are prone to pride. That's an important thing to remember. Carnal men are prone to gluttony, eminent and spiritual men are prone to pride. Which of those is worse? Pride. The sins of the flesh are sins, but they're not as bad as sins like envy and pride, which are more angelic. It would be a great temptation for someone who's worried about their holiness in an environment like ours to look out there and give thanks, God, that I'm not like the rest of these men partying on Saturday night, going to the clubs, doing all the crazy things that people are doing here. We need to pray for them. We don't need to approve of that kind of behavior, but we don't want to start getting uppity because if we're not doing those things, it's because of the mercy of God and because he's given us a grace. It's not because we're so great. It's because he's great and he's had mercy on us. So we don't want to get proud. Carnal men are prone to gluttony. Eminent and spiritual men are prone to pride. According to St. Jerome, St. Gregory the Great, and St. Thomas, Christ was taken up out of the desert 
and carried through the air to the pinnacle of the temple. Nor is it wonderful, says St. Gregory the Great, that Christ should suffer the devil to deal with him in this manner, since he suffered himself to be crucified by the devil's members. Nor did the demon necessarily betray who he himself was by this action, because he might have transported Christ in the guise of an angel of light. Or perhaps the devil cared little about betraying who he was by this action, since he already suspected and feared that he had been recognized by Christ. Hence, in the third temptation, wishing to be adored by Christ, he boldly throws off all disguise of an angel of light and unveils himself in his satanic arrogance. St. Thomas observes that although the devil took Christ through the air in such a manner that Christ might be seen by all, and by this means might then be supposed to have dealings with Satan and therefore to be a sorcerer, nevertheless, unbeknownst to the devil, Christ acted invisibly so that no one would see him. So, in fact, Christ made the devil suffer an illusion whom it intended to snare him. For the devil thought that if Christ were the Son of God, he would not allow himself to be taken up and carried through the air. By this means, the devil would know whether he was the Son of God or not. But Christ, by allowing himself to be taken up by him, frustrated the demon's plan and left him still in doubt. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. For he tempts God who acts for a miracle without necessity, such as in this case throwing oneself down, trusting that the hands of angels would support one. Thus Christ leaves the devil uncertain so that he could not tell from this temptation whether he is the Son of God or not. Verse 8. Again the devil took him up into a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. The devil snatches Christ from the pinnacle of the temple and carries him through the air to the very high mountain so as to show him from there all the kingdoms of the earth and the glory of them, the splendor of the cities, the multitudes of the people, the beauty of the lands, the might of its kings and princes, and whatever there was of beauty and magnificence in anything, so that he might desire them, and desiring them might then adore the one promised them to him. But no desire assailed Christ's soul, inasmuch as someone in the state of original justice, and therefore free of all concupiscence, would have the utmost composure in a mind subject to God, and accordingly would disdain all worldly things and strive for what is heavenly. And not only does he have, he doesn't suffer from concupiscence, he has the beatific vision. So the beatific vision, the saints in heaven have that, where they're seeing God. St. Paul says we'll see face to face, so they've got a fancy $3 word, the divine species that impressed in the intellect. What that means is a person sees this infinite goodness, and so the will just slams on. All goodness, because all created things just share in that good. Insofar as something's good, it's because there's something good in it that God placed in it. But that the source of a goodness is right there. So even if the devil, this would be impossible, but if the devil were allowed to try to tempt people in heaven, they wouldn't, you, you could show them any particular thing or everything, every cre- created thing, and they wouldn't be moved at all. It's like, well, this is just dust and trash. Who cares? Because they, they have infinite goodness there. They wouldn't be moved. So not only does he not have concupiscence, he has a beatific vision. So there's no, he's been tempted on the outside, but there's absolutely no movement on the inside of our Lord. Verse 9, And said to him, All these things will I give thee, if falling down thou wilt adore me. You ask, how did the devil dare to make such an impious and unworthy proposal to Christ? I answer, because he had seen Christ again and again declining to work a miracle. So it seemed to him more and more certain that he was not the Son of God. The devil then grew bolder, prouder, and more impudent at Christ's modest silence 
and allowing himself to be transported from the pinnacle of the temple to the mountaintop, and suspected that Christ was not the Son of God, but a mere man. Therefore he demands here from Christ, and also from all other men, the same divine honors which he had formerly coveted in heaven before he was cast down into hell. For this ambition of being a god is, is innate in Satan, and it blinds him, which is precisely why he introduced idols, that through them he might be worshipped. This is why he poses as the Son of God and desires to be worshipped as such by Christ. At the same time, however, the devil is silently testing whether Christ is the Son of God. The devil is wondering, if Christ is truly the Son of God, he will despise me, for I'm arrogating to myself this dignity when I pretend to be the Son of God and demand that he adore me as such. Therefore, he will be angry and gnash his teeth and reply, Why are you so arrogant? I am the Son of God, but you are Satan. You should adore me. In the two previous temptations, Satan wished to test directly whether Christ were the Son of God. Hence he says, If thou be the Son of God, and only indirectly tried to entice Christ to sin by gluttony and vainglory. In this third temptation, however, his direct object is to tempt Christ to avarice, ambition, and idolatry, and indirectly to find out if he were the Son of God. St. Luke points out in his gospel that the devil gave a reason to prove his right to all kingdoms by saying, For to me they are delivered, and to whom I will I give them. But the demon told two lies there. First, it's a lie that God has given all kingdoms into his power. The devil can do nothing in them unless God permits it and grants it. Second, it's a lie that the demon gives them to whomever he wills. Hence, the devil did not intend to give them to Christ and would not have given them even if Christ had adored him. As the inspired, inerrant word of God states in Psalm 23.1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all they that dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Note, first of all, the order and gradation of the temptations. The first temptation, that Christ should make bread from stones, is gluttony. The second, that he should cast himself down from the temple summit, is ostentation and vainglory. The third, he should adore the tempter who promised him all the world's kingdom was avarice, pride, and idolatry. Christ, by his examples and answers, teaches us that the first temptation of flesh and hunger is to be overcome by hoping in God and in his providence. The second, of pride and presumption, is to be vanquished by the fear of God. The third, to avarice and ambition, must be driven away by greatness of soul and contempt of the world. Verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. Christ here teaches us the answer we should give to the devil when he tempts us to avarice or to any other sin. All temptation tends and entices to this, that we should prefer the creature to the creator and worship it as his idol and serve such a demonic thing instead of God. Be gone, Satan, is about the maximum dialogue anybody should have with the devil. We pray. If you're, if you're under attack, precious blood wash over me, or be gone, Satan, and then pray. Invoke our Lord, invoke our Lady, invoke St. Michael, but pray. We don't want to have a conversation with the devil. Eve was perfect. And look what a con- where a conversation with the devil led her, and we're not. We have to be humble, so we don't carry on any kind of dialogue with the devil. Verse 11, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Learn from this that he who bravely conquers the devil in his suggestions merits and is rewarded by the fellowship, the consolation, 
and the ministry of the angels. Let's close with a few last thoughts from St. Gregory the Great. We deny ourselves during Lent and, so to speak, give a tithe on our year to God, that we who have lived for ourselves might mortify ourselves for our Maker by abstinence in his tenth of it. Hence, dearest brethren, as you are commanded by the law to offer the tithe of your substance, so also offer to God the tithe of your days. Christ was assailed by a threefold temptation, namely gluttony, vainglory, and avarice, because Adam had been attacked and overcome by the same temptations. The devil tempted Adam to gluttony when he showed him the fruit of the forbidden tree and persuaded him to eat. He tempted Adam to vainglory when he said, Ye shall be as gods. He tempted Adam to covetousness when he added, Knowing good and evil. For avarice is not only of money, but also of greatness. For that which is rightly called avarice, where there's immoderate ambition to loftiness. Then Christ was assailed by the same temptations, but proved victorious. The devil tempts him to gluttony when he says, Tell these stones to become bread. He tempts by vainglory when he says, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. He tempts by covetousness of magnificence when he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, saying, All these will I give thee, if falling down thou wilt adore me. Yet by those same means is he conquered by the second man, by which he boasted to have conquered the first man. Just as hunters set snares for various wild animals, baiting them with various foods, so as to capture a particular kind of animal, so too the devil offers foods and delicacies to those prone to gluttony, as he offers them here to Christ, or those who are fully offers ease, sleep, and sloth. To the proud, he offers honors. To the angry, lawsuits and strifes. To the avaricious, usury, frauds, unjust contracts. And to the curious, he offers sorcery, incantations, and superstitions. The first temptation of flesh and hunger is to overcome by hoping in God and his province. The second of pride and presumption is to be vanquished by the fear of God. The third to avarice and ambition must be driven away by greatness of soul and contempt of the world.